My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And by the way, so standing up here, you had Shelby Skiles on this side and Rachel Putman on this side. That was who that was, in case you were thinking, I know those. What was their name? So Shelby and Rachel, and hope you will consider uh, being a part of the women's Bible study this fall and certainly a part of the kickoff uh, that's coming in a few weeks. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by reading the first 11 verses. Uh, and then we'll walk through and, and talk about them. And I'll, I'll try to, I'm going to try to keep this um, inside a reasonable time because right after this service, we are all going to go just exit out those doors. If you can stay, I hope you can stay, because we've got baptisms in between the two services. So we'll, we're going to try to get out here just a tad early so we can get out there and get set for the baptism. So, all right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and this is how Paul writes it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experienced when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to hear these words that you inspired Paul to write, these words that the church for 2,000 years has taken such great comfort in. That, Father, not only would we hear them, we would understand them. And, Father, we want to have uh, 
minds and hearts that are wise to apply this. And so we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, I was looking back this week, and um, when I first came to Bethel, the first sermon I preached, um, I, I, I preached a sermon out of Nehemiah chapter 8. It was about this time of year, and uh, my hair was not gray, and my children were all at home and young, and... Um, but, but, so, but Nehemiah 8, it was, and I felt like it was fitting because it, it represented what I felt about the church, what, what the church is, what the church does. And it felt like, well, it would be important that the first sermon I preached, the first time we opened God's Word together as, as pastor and congregation, that we would, we would look at what God has to say. And the title of the sermon, now this tells you a lot about me all those years ago, uh, is great, maybe a good title for an academic journal article, not really a great sermon title, but this is what it was. The corporate impact of the Word of God is vital to the spiritual lives and growth of individuals. Here, let me, that's why I don't do titles, by the way, I'm terrible at them. Um, but here's essentially what it's saying. We got to open God's Word together as the church because it is it's vitally important to us as individual believers. In fact, what you find out in the New Testament is individual believer is not really two words that go together. Individual believer. Now, we each come to salvation as individuals. This is absolutely true, but we are we never stay all by ourselves in the church. That's not how it's meant to be. We're saved out of the world into the church, into this community. So I, I still believe what, what, what I preach. It's, it's this mystery that happens when we gather together around God's Word. It was Nehemiah 8. Here's just a few verses, and we'll, we'll move on from it. But th this is where I got this from. It says, all the people gathered, Nehemiah 8.1. All the people gathered as one man. They all gathered together as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. We're all gathering as one man. And Ezra, we want you to read from the word of God. You go on a few verses, it, it describes it in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, which means they, they explained it, so that the people understood the reading. This is sort of what God's people do when they gather. And then that little section ends in verse 12, it says, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing. This is the lunch that follows when you leave to go to lunch. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They went away rejoicing. This gathered as one man because they understood. You know, one of the things I take away from that 
all those years ago. And one of the things I take away from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is that our lives are intertwined with one another. Last Sunday night, Chad Bradley, our associate pastor here on the South Campus, um, he led life, the life group leaders through an excellent training, uh, just Sunday night right up here, and, and had a training notebook for us. And one of the pages in that, in that material was a page that was front and back, and it was 59 one another commandments from the New Testament. 59 commands about how we're to live with one another from the New Testament. It was pretty amazing, kind of overwhelming as you just wash your eyes over all the things that it says. In fact, this morning, you know, we're looking at 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11, and essentially what Paul's saying is, listen, comfort one another with the comfort you received from God. Actually, that doesn't even really scratch the surface. I've been staring at this passage for two weeks, and it's like this bottomless pit of theology and mystery and, and beauty. But one of the things we take away is that we are interconnected. We are interdependent. We're woven together by the Spirit of God as believers that have gathered together at the church, the local church. As Chad was talking about the one another's, you know, especially the, the praying for one another, but actually all the applies to all the one another's. He reminded us this truth that when we're life on life with each other, when we're in relationship with each other, when we're one anothering each other, it's not efficient. In fact, much of the time, it's the opposite of efficient. Relationships. Being dependent upon each other. Our lives woven together. It's, it's messy. It can be cumbersome. It can be awkward at times. Yet, it is vital. What we cannot exist and grow and thrive and flourish, dare I say, even survive without it. But growth, especially spiritual growth, it's not efficient. It's staggering to think about what we have recorded in the Gospels about the three years that Jesus spent with the disciples. Listen, there's much that can be said about those three years. There is much to be emulated about those three years. But one thing you can't really say is that you can't say it was efficient. You also can't say it was easy. So much of the life of the disciples in the Gospel is a journey of following Jesus. Wherever he went, they, they never got a vote, by the way. We don't have any evidence, at least, that the, they woke up one day and Jesus was like, yeah. So I was saying, what do you guys want to do today? That never happened. Wherever he went to do whatever he was going to do, on his timetable, for his 
purposes. I mean, they often followed him into the unknown. Jesus didn't provide them itineraries or agendas. I mean, the closest thing you have is before he goes into Jerusalem for the third time, and he tells them, okay, no, I've never done this before, never given you an agenda or heads up what's happening, but here's the thing. When we get to Jerusalem, I just want you to know, and then he gives them the itinerary. I'm going to be arrested, and then I'm going to be beaten, and then I'm going to be shamed. Actually, it's a pretty bad shame. Then I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried, and then I'm going to raise again. Just so you know the timeline when we get there. They didn't want to hear anything about that. So I'd say this. In 2,000 years, Christianity... This thing we're doing, this life in Christ as believers together interwoven, it is no more efficient than when it started. It also hasn't gotten easier. Now, now here is what has changed, and what's changed is the culture all around us. The world around us has changed. Efficiency, this is the king. What is easy, this is an idol for us. Right? I want it fast. I want it now. It better be easy. Thank you very much. We don't want any hassles. We don't tolerate disappointments. We have no patience for anything that is messy whatsoever. So here's the rub. When we have an expectation or a demand for the church to feel to us like our iPhone you know, fast, efficient, an app for everything, a distraction when I want it or need it. If we think the church is going to be like that, we are going to be hugely disappointed. Yes, I just said hugely. Worst adverb ever. (laughs) Let me say it this way. When that's what you want from the church, that's your expectation, then what you want and what you expect, that is not the church. Maybe, just maybe, you've fallen into an understanding of the church that's not the church at all. See, I don't think the church has done a very good job reminding churchgoers exactly what the church is. I, I, I confess, as your pastor, I've not done a very good job of it. I don't want to be too dramatic, but let me say it this way. The church in America, where we live, it's in a crisis. Truth is, it's been in a crisis a long time. This pandemic, the last 15, 18 months, it's exacerbated that. I think it is related to a huge disconnect between what the church is and what many people demand the church should be to them. So let me just remind you, we we looked at it last week. We're going to look at it the next couple of weeks. I've got a definition of the church that we talked about as elders a couple of weeks ago. I think think I've got slides for this, but the church, here's how we would define it. 
It is the people of God, the the body of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It is the first fruits of the kingdom in the midst of a sinful and rebellious world. The church is a people belonging to God, purchased with the blood of His Son. The church is His own possession and treasure, the bride of His eternal Son, and it is cared for, shepherded by elders and deacons and life group leaders that He's called to watch over and protect. That's what the church is. It's what the church has always been. And the mission of the church, why we exist in the world, what, what we are here for, the New Testament is so clear about it. It's to go into the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the whole creation, calling all people to faith, making disciples, glorifying God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit of the kingdom and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's kind of the New Testament on the back of a napkin, if you will. And the purpose of all that, New Testament's clear about that as well. So that Jesus is worshiped and exalted to the glory of the Father. And that God's saving power would be known to the ends of the earth. And what the church is and what the church is here to do, what we, why we exist and the purpose for which we exist, those things are static. They are eternal. They are abiding. And so when a church has a vision, like Bethel Bible Church has a vision. You can read it on the website. It's three paragraphs long, and it's a great vision. A few years ago, we said, you know, three paragraphs. That's a lot of paragraphs, a lot of words to remember. So we put some elders together and some pastors together and came up with a summary of it, and that's growing communities which means multiplication and discipleship. This is just kind of the whole first paragraph of the vision. The second paragraph of the vision we summed up is building leaders, growing community, and building leaders. The third one is that we would live generously. It's how we want to be the church, what the church is, what the church does, and for the purpose That's how we contextualize that here in East Texas. This morning, we're talking about growing community, growing communities. And I'm wanting to look at it from these 11 verses in 2 Corinthians. Now, we could look at it in a lot of places, what that looks like, but I want to consider these verses this morning. Here's the timeline of 2 Corinthians. Actually, what's interesting is it's really 4 Corinthians, We just only have two of the four letters that Paul wrote. Here's the timeline. He visits Corinth. We looked at that last week, Acts 18. Then he he writes the first letter to Corinth, and that letter's lost. 
Then he writes a second letter to Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians. Then he makes a second visit to Corinth, which he calls a painful visit. Writes a third letter. That's lost. And then he writes a fourth letter. And that's what we have this morning. The fourth letter to the Corinthians. And this is probably the most personal and most intimate and most vulnerable letter that Paul writes to anyone. Now, Corinth was a messy place. It was a relational and spiritual and theologically messy place. And the relationship with Paul and this church, the believers here, it was tense. In 1 Corinthians 1, or 2 Corinthians 1, just a few verses after what we're looking at, in, in verse 23 he says this, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. They wanted to Paul to come back, things were tense, Paul was mad, and he says, look, it's by God's grace that I wasn't able to come back. And I, maybe Paul means, because I, I would have said some things that I couldn't take back, or you would have said some things you couldn't take back, and we would have, it's just, it's God's grace that he spared us from that. Isn't that interesting? The relationships inside the church were tense. The relationship with the church and the community it was in was tense. This is not, I mean, when you write things about healthy, you know, if you had a book called Healthy Church, it wouldn't be 2 Corinthians. They didn't read that book. Things were a mess there. Yet this is what I find so interesting. Paul is probably more tender more vulnerable, writes some of the most beautiful and encouraging things that he wrote. He writes them to this church. He knows that as believers, tense or not, messy or not, challenging or not, they are inextricably linked together. It is impossible for them as believers to untangle what God has woven together. Here's a few observations from the text. If you glance quickly at those 11 verses, if you've got your Bibles opened, that there are 10 words in the Greek language, the language that the Bible was written in, to um, describe suffering. Five of those words are used in this letter tells us that we get like this full scope, all the dimensions of suffering get considered here. And then Paul uses this word comfort. Half of all the times that word is used in the New Testament, it is used in this letter, 30 times, 29 times. And 10 of those times, the word comfort, 10 times he uses it in verses 3 to 7 theme is comfort in suffering. If 
you looked at verses 3 through 7, it's practically every other word that he uses it. And they set the stage for what he wants to tell them, what he wants to show them. Listen, you may be in the middle of your life, in the middle of your suffering. There may be, you may be in the middle of, of pain or hurt or sorrow or despair this morning. Maybe you're walking through grief or, or loneliness. You have a struggle this morning and you just, you just can't put words to it. This passage, these words are meant to comfort you. They're meant to provide you with a, with a solid rock to stand on when everything else around you feels like it's shifting or sinking. These verses are meant to lodge who God is deep into your soul. so that you're ready. If you're not in suffering now, you will be, but that you have a solid place to stand. Here are five things very quickly, and then we're going to go to baptisms. One, we experience suffering in God. We experience suffering in God. We as believers don't experience suffering apart from God. We experience it in God. This is part of why Paul is writing the letter. There are people, they are causing trouble at Corinth. They were questioning Paul's apostleship. And by questioning his apostleship, the whole church was coming under question, his leadership of the church, because of all the suffering that Paul had gone through. And they're saying this, Paul, he must not really be of God. He must not really be blessed by God. Look at all the suffering he's experiencing. Paul's life was hard. It's not very different than the way the church or people from the church speak today about suffering. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, sometimes they don't say it out loud, but they say it with their countenance or their attitude or their backhanded comments. I mean, if somebody's suffering, they must be outside of God's blessing. They're not being blessed by God. That's a, Paul's going to help us know, that's the biggest lie that has ever been propagated. Now, there are a couple of kinds of suffering. One, there's a suffering that comes when you are dumb, okay? When you're disobedient, you suffer the consequences. That is a suffering. That is, you invited it. There it is. That's suffering. That's, that one's on you, okay? Happens to all of us. Doesn't mean God's not sovereign over that suffering, but we're, we get, we own that one. You know, like in basketball, you come to fight, oh, that one's on me. But here's what's crazy. There is also a suffering that comes by virtue of loving God and following Him. There's a suffering that comes 
from obedience. The Bible's filled with examples of godly suffering, people like Job or Jeremiah. It's not the result of their disobedience to God. There are people who suffered as a result of their love for God, their following God. It's important. This is the kind of suffering Paul's talking about. Just living in the world as one of God's people, you are out of sync with the world around you. And that brings a kind of pain and a kind of suffering and trouble that we experience in the process of pursuing God. And it's something we've got to learn. It's, it's something that, it's a part of our spiritual growth. I have two points, and I'm not going to expound on them, but if you want to know, email Fritz, and he'll tell you. <laughs> Prosperity theology is a poison. Prosperity theology is an addiction. And it's a lie. And it's terrible. You're not going to experience your best life now. Every day is not Friday. It's not. Moving on. Here's the second thing. God is in control. He's sovereign over all things, even suffering. If we were to bounce towards the end of the book in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning verse 7, just listen to what Paul says. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Paul says, I, I understand. God was revealing things to me. It was, it was really amazing. And God cared so much about me to keep me from getting all puffed up about that. It says this, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, I am strong. It's this thorn in the flesh. It was given to him. Given to him by who? Well, some might say, well, Satan gave it to him because he's mentioned in the passage. Maybe. It's not really the way Paul looks at it, though. He prays to God about it. He prays, God, will you take this away? If anybody has power to do anything about this thorn in the flesh, this suffering, this God is the one. And Paul knows that if it stays, it's because God is keeping it there for a purpose. Two things I'd say about that. When what Satan intends for us is sabotage, and listen, he does. He intends things in our life for sabotage. God ordains that for our sanctification. Sabotage, that's meant to derail us. Sanctification, that is meant to grow us, to bring good to us, to conform us to the likeness of Christ by transforming us. And there is in this a mystery. We do not always know why God in His sovereign wisdom and His sovereign love 
ordains that we experience some of the sufferings that we do. But it doesn't mean we just throw His sovereignty out the window. We, we cling to it like Paul does. Here's the third thing I'd say. God has made Himself familiar with all our suffering. I'm back in 2 Corinthians 1 where we started, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Those words are important. One, God comes to us as a Father. Which means we are His children. Which means He knows the heartache of a father. He also comes as a son who is described as the Christ, the incarnate one. The God who is sovereign over over us. He is not far from us. He is not unfamiliar with what's going on in our lives. No, He's God who is with us, literally. That's what Emmanuel means. Jesus is the Christ. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He identified Himself with the brokenness. All our weakness, frailty, When you hurt, you know he knows hurt. Loss, he experienced loss. Betrayed, he knew betrayal. Loneliness, Jesus knew this. He was mocked and beaten and spit upon and scourged. Physical, relational emotional suffering all at the hands of his creation that he loved knows what it's like to cry out on the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me and this is a critical part of the gospel this is part of the good news this morning the God of the universe the creator of all your father in heaven is familiar with your suffering. He sees your struggles, hears your cries, knows how you feel. He's familiar with it. Which brings me to the fourth thing that Paul says here is that God is the source of all compassion and all comfort. I already said 29 times that word comfort in this letter, half of all the times in the New Testament. Ten times in these verses, three and four and five and six and seven. It literally means to come alongside and help. Think of that. The God of all comfort means no one else can provide what God does. If He gives all comfort all comfort. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? What kind of comfort? All. What kind of situations? All. 
it means there's no situation. Absolutely no situation that we face in our life that is beyond the comfort of God. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, God is sufficient to meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just comfort you here, comfort you there. All the time, with all comfort. God's comfort always outweighs your suffering. So what it means in verses 8 and 9, Paul says in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. You surprised the Apostle Paul wrote something that seems so undignified and so unchristian. I am. He, he despaired of life itself. And then he says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But it was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the fifth one. Comfort has a divine and sovereign purpose. The, the purpose, follow this, and I'm bringing it all around here, and then we're going to baptize. The purpose of Paul's suffering is deeper. It is more mysterious. It's more complex and more beautiful than even his own comfort and his own sanctification. His suffering has a greater purpose. In verse 4, you see the purpose. The God of all comfort, he says the end of 3, then in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction so that... It's a purpose statement. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In verse 5, he says, we share with others in the comfort of Christ. In verse 6, if we're afflicted, it's for your sake. It's for your comfort, for your salvation. Paul is saying this, I embrace suffering because I know I will experience comfort. And when I do, I'll pass that on to you. And we're comforted for the sake of others. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, 
when once you have turned again, you would strengthen your brothers. You're going to go through it, Peter. But I prayed you'll stay strong. And in this way, you'll be able to strengthen others. Now, what if? What if? The Word of God urges us to be people who are God-centered about our suffering. What if we began to believe that whatever happens to us is ordained by God for our good? Yes, but what if we also believe that whatever happens to us in our lives is ordained by God for others? That what happens in your life is ordained by God for my good. What happens in my life is ordained by God for, for your good. And that is so different than how we naturally think by virtue of where we are born and all of the cultural cues that we get all around us of an individual mindset that, mindset that says everything centers on us. And the first question we ask, what is God teaching me through this? And listen, that's a good question, not a bad question. But we don't need to stop at that question. What if God's not just teaching you? What if he desires what he's teaching you or this circumstance or your, your situation in this suffering is meant to teach others? Paul says this to, to the Corinthians, the more I suffer... That the more comfort I experience, and as a result, the more comfort I'm able to give to others. It is radically, so mind-bogglingly, God-centered. It is a perspective that says, I love the people God has woven me together with. That's what Paul's saying to, to these people that are really hard to love. And they're having a really hard time loving Paul, by the way, too. What if God doesn't comfort us merely to make us comfortable? What if he comforts us to be comforters? One more verse, and I'm done. I've gone over. Todd's going to be so mad at me. In chapter 7 of this letter, we'll look at it again, actually. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, and oh, there was fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by sending Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comfort, was comforted by you. And as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, it's just so that I rejoiced all the more. And there's this whole circle of comfort that's going around, and this is a reality. God's designed the church to care for each other as we hurt. There's not one person in this room that God is designed to hurt alone. So Paul says at the end of this, verse 11, pray for us, pray for us. 
Help us. We walk together in all this. We bear each other's burdens. This is what it means to be the church. We're a fellowship of brothers and sisters who hurt. We have real hurt because we live in the real world, real life. And we hurt because we are on mission together. But we hurt with hope. That's the whole point of these passages. We are a fellowship of brothers and sisters who in our suffering are learning to rely on God and learning to hope in God even when we face death, even when we fear, fear, feel fearful. Because we know that a God-centered life is the most important thing that there is. And it's not easy. So utterly burdened, he said. I wanted it to end. Paul says, I despaired of life. I couldn't see any way out. But then he looks up and he says, but he relies on God who raises the dead. I felt like I was dying, but then I looked up and I saw the God who raises the dead. And we remind each other when we feel like we are dying. It's okay. We love a God and are comforted by a God who loves us, a God who raises from the dead. So we're a people with a hope in the resurrection of Jesus. We experience this. We nurture this. We grow in it. We have faith in it. We have community with one another. We, we rely on each other, hope with one another. We fight for each other's faith. We endure with one another and comfort one another. We suffer together. We suffer for each other. And we do that by God's design. Here's the conclusion. And I got three seconds. Get in a small group. What's the conclusion? How do we apply this? Get into a small group. And if you have never suffered in your whole life, get into a small group so you'll suffer. <laughs> Sometimes they are, I'll be honest. You'll be in there and think, I don't like this person. Good. Yeah, you're right and you're in just the right place. Let's pray. Let's pray and go baptize some people. You want to? Father, help us. Some message is so hard. We don't, we don't, we, we go ahead and say, we don't like this. But Father, you didn't ask us if we liked it. So we declare that it's true. And we're going to lean in to your design. And we're going to trust you with that. Knowing that you aim for our good and for your glory. And we want to be right in the middle of what you have for us. So help us in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. If you would, would you stand with me? Would you head that way? We'll go under the carport, and I'm sure the music's playing already. And just tell him it was Tom's fault. He prayed long this morning, all right? <laughs>